morning. Welcome to Rising. We've got just a really wonderful show for you today. So excited to tell you all about it. And for that, I turn to Brianna. <laughs> well, we've got Eliami Olerin and Raphael Mangual joining us to discuss new data on how crime may affect voters' decisions on Election Day. Plus, U.S. Right to Know's Emily Kopp will break down new investigations into the origins of COVID-19. But first, The Washington Post reports that President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden have been meeting privately with advisors since September to lay the path for the president's 2024 re-election bid. Biden has yet to publicly confirm he'll seek a second term. However, according to the Post, he's eager to get into the race, especially if former President Trump announces a comeback run. The president returned to Washington, D.C. last night after touching down in Florida to campaign for Democratic candidates Charlie Crist and Val Demings. While in the Sunshine State, Biden railed against Republicans over proposed cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Let's watch. The senator from Florida going after Medicare and Social Security? Uh, I tell you what, I don't know where, as they say in Southern, I don't know where y'all been. Hot damn, boy. You've been paying the Social Security your whole life. You earned it. Now, these guys want to take it away. Who in the hell do they think they are? Excuse my language. Biden also had this to say about inflation. And they talk about inflation. You know, we're dealing with it for a whole second. Inflation is a worldwide problem right now because of a war in Iraq and the impact on oil and what Russia's doing. I mean, excuse me, the war in, in Ukraine. And... Uh, think of Iraq because that's where my son died. The, uh, because he died. The, uh, but the point is that, they're, uh, you know, that's why it's up. We have the lowest inflation rate of almost any major country in the world. Second term, huh? <laughs> yeah. Look, it's so sensitive. Yeah. Um, it's frustrating because, pe- first of all, people slip up sometimes, but we obviously know that with Joe Biden, it's a regularity um, that is not of average. And that's part of why there's been so much speculation about people entering the race. There have been moves made by other folks that seem to suggest that they're interested in getting into the race. And still, just because Joe Biden's running, it doesn't mean that he's not going to get a a challenger. It's less likely that I think he'll get an establishment challenger, but there still could be a left challenger to Joe mm-hmm. Biden who might be able to pick up more interest than they would ordinarily simply because of moments like this. And moreover, on top of just the forgetfulness here, there is this other trait that Joe Biden has, which is sometimes he brings up his real horrible tragedies that have existed in his life that have, that have happened to him to paper over parts of his record or parts of his memory that aren't so sunny. So there was this moment where he argued that we couldn't have Medicare for all because he had to pay for his son's medical bills. You know, I have all the sympathy in the world for what it means to lose a child, but that's not an excuse to deny millions of other people health care. Just argue it on the merits. Yeah. So I was not surprised to hear that he's talking about making another go of it because it would be astonishing to me if he didn't. It would be somewhat historically unprecedented, at least historically unprecedented in the modern era, where political figures cling to power. Nobody gives up power willingly. Nobody steps aside for the next guy. That just does not happen in our modern political system. You have people in their 80s and 90s still actively involved in politics in both the Democratic and the Republican Party. Dianne Feinstein is still in office despite very, very clear and not insensitive, but but clear um, indications 
means that she is not mentally capable of doing the job anymore. Um, uh, Chuck Grassley is going to be in his his uh, 90s um, if he wraps up the term he's running for re-election to right now. Uh, the average age of our of our people is a, is a national security issue at some point that we have we have people so old in office being asked to weigh in on policies that affect. I mean, think of the tech policies. Think of the, what you know what we discussed yesterday. My radar. We're going to discuss mm-hmm. uh, uh, soon again on the show the DHS um, leak, the information, uh, what the Homeland Security is doing to pressure tech companies. These involve technical questions that are beyond the reach of many of our parents. Some of us, many of our parents, let alone our grandparents, let alone our great-grandparents who are the age of these people. Yes. When you see the the Facebook hearings and you see the difficulty that some of these Congress people have with managing basic uh, (laughs) topics, it doesn't doesn't give you a lot of hope. Well, look, let me me ask you this. From a strategic perspective, what do you think about Biden versus some other hypothetical progressive or left or liberal candidate if the person they're going up to get against is some combination of... Trump or DeSantis? Do you think there's someone who could do a better job than Joe Biden at the poll? Not particularly. Yeah. Um, for all his drawbacks, he is the most uniting and popular figure in the Democratic Party right now. Um, that's not really a, a very strong endorsement of the Democratic Party's roster. Yeah. Uh, but there is there is no one who combines his I mean, his name recognition, frankly, is a major asset. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's generally there are a lot of older, more moderate voters in the Democratic Party are culturally moderate voters or religiously inclined voters sure. who are still part of the Democratic coalition who we don't hear kind of as much about. Um, for, you know, they, they're not well represented in sort of media voices. And he, it seems to me that that's his hidden strength as he's popular with them. He's been popular with black voters as well. And, uh, and, and that no one else kind of quite has that uh, pinned down. Now, that... That's again. That might not be good enough. Might be good enough against Trump. I don't know. We'll see if he's going to get in. Yeah, I don't well, know that it would be good enough against any other Republican. But we'll yeah. find out. Well, we'll see if his popularity with black voters holds. Mm-hmm. Of course, an undercovered reality was that. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden were neck and neck mm-hmm. by February 2020 with black voters. They were the only two that got into double digits with black voters, despite uh, so-called liberal institutions like the New York Times waxing poetic about figures like um, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, who they remember co-endorsed uh, for, the, for uh, their presidential endorsement. Combined, those women got 10 percent of the black vote and polls. And so, you know, look, it's, it's frustrating because I think a lot of black voters are looking at how these past two years have gone, the promises that were made in Georgia specifically, if they were to secure the Senate for the Democrats, and the fact that those promises never materialized, specifically the $2,000 checks and the student debt uh, relief commitments. And, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, I think it would be better for the longer term interest of black people if they acted a little bit more like Latino voters didn't pledge fealty to the Democratic Party and allow themselves to be courted. I mean, ju- just looking at it from a purely strategic or political standpoint, I mean, like, I right, I don't prefer Bernie Sanders' views to Joe Biden. Maybe on some issues nope. they do. On, well, on, on, on foreign policy, <laughs> yeah. sort of, although, although now, although now he's days. letting us down a little bit, yeah. um, certainly there are elements of, uh, right, of Bernie Sanders' different approach to policies that I appreciate and some of, some of which I would agree with. 
I, and he was clearly a popular figure as well among uh, Democratic voters. He was also able to motivate some independent-minded working-class groups that were trending conservative for a variety of reasons, yeah. and he was able to keep them in the fold. I, I think he would have been a—I've said this before—I think he would have been a stronger candidate than Hillary Clinton in 2016. I think he probably would have been— as strong or close, somewhat close to Joe Biden as a candidate in this previous election, and maybe could be again. Although he's also, in all, you know, in all fairness, he's also running up against kind of age threshold. I don't think it shows in his behavior, but I, I he is agree. also quite old. He's old, but the the mental faculties yeah. are night and day compared to Joe Biden. No, and that's no I do want to be there. careful with some of this age stuff. I think it is a problem that we don't cultivate a younger bench. And that's why I have an objection to someone like Bernie Sanders still being in the mix. But absent the younger bench, I don't think that I have the problem with him that I do with Joe Biden, simply because he's still running up and down stairs and answering que- you know, compound, complicated questions in a way that demonstrates a level of understanding. Our peer countries toss their leader. The party tosses the leader the second they, 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 they age out or they offend them or they, they do something wrong. They, Britain threw out Liz Truss <laughs> in like a month. <laughs> we, can't, we can't get it. It's been decades. It's, a, it's the Titanic. It's been 89 years. Whatever it is. Right. <laughs> Cannot get rid of them. She should probably run. Uh, she, she's a, 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 spry, a spry young lass compared to our uh, our congressional candidates. Certainly, certainly that's true. All right, Brianna, I'm excited for your radar, and that'll be up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, some simpering, warmongering liberals are getting pretty lost on Ukraine, and it stands to cost them a lot more than just midterms. You see, I got into trouble on Monday when, on my podcast, Bad Faith, I interviewed a national security expert and former president of Plowshares Fund, Joe Cerenzioni, about his critique of the now infamous Congressional Progressive Caucus letter. In my eyes, the letter offered a mere glimmer of hope that the left wasn't going to completely concede its anti-war bona fides to the right, but Joe saw it differently, tweeting, this isn't about the left or rejection of diplomacy. It is about a very small group with a very specific idea of how to force Ukraine to end the war. This is not diplomacy. It is great power politics. What Representative Raskin today called a, quote, colonial reflex. Now, of course, nothing in the CPC letter articulated a specific idea of how to end the war. And it certainly didn't force Ukraine to end it on any timeline or under any specific conditions. In fact, the letter lauded Joe Biden's approach to the war and the billions in appropriations Biden has sent via the Ukraine relief packages. But that didn't stop liberals from completely melting down. As a Vox write-up explained, Even as many journalists and experts pointed out that much of the letter's contents echoed parts of President Joe Biden's own rhetoric or were otherwise anodyne, international affairs professor and Vox contributor Daniel Drinzer called it a giant nothing burger, critics piled on the members of Congress on social media and picked apart every word of it. And so the courageous progressive lions at the CPC stuck to their guns and LOL, just kidding, caucus leader Pramila Jayapal offered a correction before ultimately retracting the letter the next day. It was a pathetic move that led Tulsi Gabbard to say this completely unimpeachably true statement on Tucker Carlson last week. These so-called progressives did a very simple thing that apparently uh, can appear to be brave in Washington these days. In that letter to President Biden, they just told the truth 
about how this ongoing proxy war with Russia is increasing in cost and consequences, both on the Ukrainian people, but also the American people here at home and how it's negatively impacting gas prices, increasing inflation and so on. Uh, you know, the, these progressives in the letter, they didn't say stop sending aid to Ukraine now. All they said was, hey, President Biden, engage in diplomacy. Uh, and the response they got, of course, from the warmongers who control the Democrat Party in Washington was to immediately be smashed to pieces, so much so that these Democrat members of Congress cowered in the corner with fear and now have gone so far out of their way, apologizing profusely for having the audacity to call for diplomacy in this war that's putting us all at risk. And now they've actually gone 180 degrees in the opposite direction. They're now trying to prove how much of a, a warmongers they too are by saying, no, don't engage in diplomacy. We don't want you to do that. Uh, th this is exactly, Tucker, one of the main reasons I left the Democrat Party. They are completely controlled by these warmongers in Washington. They don't really care about the Ukrainian people. Otherwise, they would have engaged in of diplomacy course. many, many months ago. Now, I certainly disagree with Tulsi on plenty of things. But in, in that clip, I saw no lie. And because I respect Joe Serencioni and am confident enough in my views and my intellect to engage with people who disagree with me, I invited him onto my podcast to discuss it with me. Here's how he responded to the Tulsi clip when I played it for him. If you really believed, like I do and have been arguing for weeks, that Democrats are setting Tulsi up to make that exact argument. Okay. I can't be mad at Tulsi. Tulsi didn't say a single untrue thing <gasps> there. Are I'm you sorry. kidding me? It's one lie after the other. What are name, you talking about? Name a lie. Warmongers. Which? Warmongers. The Democratic Party is controlled Wait, by sorry. warmongers? We're leftists. We obviously know and believe that the Democratic Party is controlled by warmongers. We, the, the, the deep state knows no D or our party affiliation. Wait, the, the, this, this, is, this is like she not even a controversial the, statement. She even lies the about the name of the party. The whole point of why we loved Bernie Sanders. She, she calls it the Democratic he had a, an issue with her calling the, the Democrat Party like that was the real central concern here on the hearts and minds of Americans. Now, look, the interview was tough but cordial. We ended very warmly and on good terms. However, the next day on Twitter, Joe decided that he wasn't a fan of how people responded to his own words. And he accused me of, quote, weaponizing clips of him talking in our interview to, quote, attack him. He even threatened to abandon Twitter, opining that, quote, Musk's control will make it even worse. Moreover, he said that I, quote, encourage supporters to post hundreds of insults and smears without correction. Now, I sincerely regret that he feels that way. I really did enjoy talking to Joe both times he came on my podcast. But here's the hard truth. Those insults and smears weren't encouraged by me. They were totally organic. People just hated his take. And here's why. Joe engaged in uncritical support for Pramila Jayapal, whom he described as a, quote, great progressive leader, even though she bungled the $15 minimum wage, the Nina Turner endorsement, and the Build Back Better bifurcation. He described Zelensky as, quote, one of the greatest leaders we've seen in a long time, and many of his comments came off as canned and almost jingoistic. He accepted the CPC's narrative that the letter was a staff mistake, and even though Representative Ro Khanna has publicly rejected that claim and stood by the letter, and even though blaming subordinates reflects incredibly poorly on leadership, he kept doing so. But most importantly, Joe struggled to answer one fundamental question. What assurances are there that U.S. aid is motivated by a humanitarian drive toward peace 
rather than military adventurism, especially after it was reported back in May that then Prime Minister Boris Johnson undermined peace talks. Given the United States actions in Libya, where thanks to NATO intervention, there are now slave markets, Afghanistan, which we occupied for 20 years, and Iraq, which we invaded on false pretenses and killed a million people, I think it's a reasonable question. Russia has violated international law by invading Ukraine. But given America's past behavior, what assurances can experts like Joe give us that the U.S.'s role here isn't pretextual? That was my only question. And I think it's a particularly necessary question, given that America regularly ignores humanitarian causes like the genocide in Rwanda or Bosnia. And since our own president and State Department officials keep saying that their goal is to weaken Russia, a goal that is not quite the same as protecting Ukrainian people or its borders. Here's how I put it to Joe. There are gangs that have overtaken Haiti. There is a cholera pandemic that was started by the U.N. U.N. members raped Haitians. A third of Pakistan was underwater. Should we go, due to, due to the climate crisis, should we go and invade China because Uyghurs are in concentration camps? Tell me, tell me, articulate. This is the question that I asked Matt Dust when this war first started. Until you can articulate to me what the rationale is behind where America intervenes and where it doesn't and give me some kind of moral accounting that makes me believe that it's actually about moral commitments and realizing how much of our money and our resources in the richest country in the world can go to saving lives and increasing the quality of life for the most people, as opposed to a a strategic military intervention Mm -hmm. for territory resources and political control. If you can articulate to me why this is truly the most deserving humanitarian case on the planet, as opposed to a continuation of these cold war policies, we want our economic system, our oppressive, by the way, economic system to maintain global dominance, then I can start to entertain a conversation about what our intervention should be, how long and how much. Now, you can watch a free 30-minute clip of that interview over at the Bad Faith YouTube channel or subscribe on Patreon to watch the whole thing. But for now, you'll have to trust me when I say I never offered a satisfactory explanation, at least not in my view. As you heard, he attempted to use abuses against children and emotional ploys so common and trite that it's literally a meme to shame me into dropping my legitimate concerns. And although many blue checks are at this very moment accusing me of rolling my eyes at genocide, I was in fact rolling my eyes at Joe using such a cliched argument to avoid the fundamental question. Why save these women, these children, but not these ones? Now, it's worth noting that some fact checkers have disputed Joe's account of kidnapped Ukrainian children. But even if we accept it on its face, as I did in the interview, and as much as my heart aches for human suffering everywhere... A humanitarian crisis in Ukraine does not get to the question of why and to what extent America should play the world's policeman. And if it does adopt the role as a global cop, why are we only choosing to police certain neighborhoods? 2.2 million Yemeni children under the age of five are starving right now as a result of a Saudi-backed war. The United States has sent $4.5 billion in humanitarian aid to Yemen since the beginning of the conflict seven years ago. Compare that to the $40 billion aid package that went out the door earlier this year. And while words like evil are used frequently to describe Putin, 
Saudi princes are apparently off the hook. Joe Biden flew to Saudi Arabia to fist bump the architect of the tragedy in Yemen and beg him for oil so that Biden could keep control of Congress. This is an article from September. Did you even know that half a million children are at risk of dying in Somalia from hunger? The selective outrage is deafening. I will say this, when pushed, some people, including Joe, offer up a rationale that is closer to the truth. Joe argued that America must be involved in this conflict to protect the, quote, geopolitical global order, saying, quote, you cannot allow a nation by force to change the boundaries of Europe. You haven't seen that since the end of World War II. Well, I think Palestine might have a little something to say about who we let, allow to change borders. But in fairness to Joe, he did specify Europe for some reason that I'll decline to interrogate here. Still, I'm old enough to remember the breakup of Yugoslavia. Borders do change, even in Europe. The reason being that they were poorly drawn borders that failed to accommodate the ethnic tensions and allegiances of the region in the first place. Sound familiar? Now, again, I have not said a thing about what I think Ukrainians should do. Remember, this whole conversation was about me defending a letter that generically said, hey, give peace a chance. Not one that says Ukraine must give up the Donbass to Russia. But despite this mild pushback against the war machine, Democrats have accused me of being an isolationist and a subhuman fascist. They've accused me of, quote, promoting genocide and wanting inaction on Ukraine. Former Ukraine ambassador to Austria called me a reptile for, again, simply asking what the end game was to a conflict we should all hope will end. Another former Ukrainian ambassador described me as embodying the banality of evil. And one user posted this image. Well, <laughs> I'll leave you to interpret what exactly that's all about. All this for defending a letter that stated the obvious. The goal here should be peace. And this is where Joe gave the game away. One of the points of the letter is they want the U.S. to negotiate a ceasefire. Well, eventually, doesn't everybody want there to be a ceasefire? Doesn't well, everybody uh, want there to be the end of the war? Yes, but then you go to the end of the letter and it says this is the, this is the primary aim of U.S. policy should be to end this war. It should it not be? <sighs> if it's wrong to simply ask about the path to peace, what hope should we have that the State Department, with its incentives to invest in war, will work toward that end? Fighting to the last Ukrainian is what Russia said it wants. And while I suspect some Ukrainians might not love a plan that would put them all in the ground, it doesn't bother the blob. It's not their lives at stake, not their kids dying in the war. This is the critical point. Ukraine is not going to militarily defeat Russia. This should not come as a shock to you. Russia is a nuclear-capable superpower. Ukraine is not. Here's formal sp former special advisor to the U.N. Secretary General, Jeffrey Sachs, on this very point. Because the United States uh, seems uh, militarily to believe that they will defeat Russia. Uh, Russia is a, a country with uh, considerable firepower, to say the least, and with 1,800 active nuclear warheads. And so all of this uh, talk of defeating Russia, to my mind, is reckless. But uh, at, at my age, I'm 67. I've, I've lived through decades of reckless U.S. foreign policy, U.S. Uh, bravado. And I'm afraid that we're at it again. 
This is why it makes no sense to say that America has no right to weigh in on the end of this conflict. In fact, that framing actually is all wrong. It seems obvious that Americans have a right to weigh in on where their money is going. And yet I've seen the following argument all over the place. Why do some Americans think that they're so special and unique that we have an obligation to prove anything to them slash convince them? Self-obsessed and selfish much? I'm sorry, but the world doesn't revolve around you, said one tweet. Ma'am, it's literally our tax dollars. And if you don't want any input on how you fight Russia, I totally get it. America has certainly done enough meddling in Ukraine for a lifetime. But now that U.S. money is involved, you can't treat the possible end or diminishment of U.S. aid as coercive in and of itself. When Democrats do this, they give Kevin McCarthy license to credibly argue that Democrats are presenting Ukraine a blank check. What else can you call it if discussing any prospective limit or on U.S. aid gets you named a genocide denier? Again, at no point did I or the CBC letter actually say that aid should be withdrawn. But if asking questions about a diplomatic plan to end the war makes Democrats call you a vile you-know-what, <laughs> is there any wonder that the right is seen as a more hospitable place for peace movement? Someone just tweeted at me that I should stop tweeting while you're doing your radar because I need to pay attention to. It. But I, but I agree with everything you're saying, so I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a substantive uh, comment. No, I, I, I think you did a great job uh, in that interview. Uh, always, you know, kudos to you for wanting to uh, engage with people who, uh, who have different perspectives. Right? I don't agree with that guy's perspective at all. I think our viewers know that. And uh, I, he's just, I think, embarrassed that he didn't acquit himself particularly well. I mean, like he failed to articulate a rationale. You know, you got to the, and he absolutely tried to do the moralizing, like, oh well, you care about the children dying or being kidnapped. And then, as you point out, well, if the standard is the U.S. government must intervene or or give aid to help people stop unfortunate deaths of children then we're going to be involved all over the world. And also, we have caused the deaths of children through our drone Absolutely. wars and our regime change. Absolutely. So it's not—it's clearly not humanitarian. It's something else. We're pretending it's a humanitarian, but that's false. Just be honest about it. Right. He could have been honest about it. He could have said, this yeah. is, again, as I've said before, a strategic priority for the U.S. Um, and then we can have a conversation about whether that is true, whether this is a legitimate strategic right. priority of the U.S., whether the U.S. people agree that it's a legitimate Right, and that's the key point. Like, I'm very sensitive to the idea that the American America shouldn't be meddling, that America shouldn't decide yeah. for Ukraine how it ends its war, et cetera. But there's this weird thing that's happened where if you even bring up peace, the implication being at some point the aid spigot is going to turn off if they're no longer fighting, then withdrawing funds is literally characterized as dictating Ukrainian policy. And look, the, the, the fundamental question here that no one's really talking about, the real problem is there is not an independent and independently mass-funded peace organization that can intervene without the Im implicit directives coming with the country that's paying for it, yeah. right? Like there is no, you know, alien from the sky that can come down and just adjudicate these kind of disputes. So 
whenever there's aid, there's going to be strings attached. And frankly, America has used its aid, um, these international aid organizations to be incredibly manipulative all yes. over the world, disrupting economies. Many countries in Africa are very upset right now about the grain crisis that's impending as a consequence of this war that they had nothing to right. do with. But this is the reality that we're in now. And it cannot be the case that we can't even have a conversation about peace because any implication that we drop aid by even a penny or make it contingent on anything at all is somehow doing uh, I mean, imperialism. Be, it's imperialism be, if we add this imperialism if we don't It would be act. contrary to the practices of governments for like 2000 years and before it never has it been the case that I, we can go back to, we can go to medieval history. We can go to, we can go to ancient history. No, no government or quasi government organization just like gives money to some cause without any, without wanting something in return or, or wanting to, to some, to, to put some, attach some strings to it. Like the reason they do that is for like, that is what diplomacy is. Diplomacy yeah. is trying to get countries to act in our interests. And we, we have a variety of tools to have them do that. There can be war, there can be aid, there can be trade, there's there can sanctions. be there's sanctions, all, kinds there can of be all sorts of things, but it's not the point is to get more of what we want. Yeah, let's just be honest about it. And again, I don't approve of all of the, right. most of those things, not all but of But what we things. want here is peace. What we want here is peace. So let's attach a, a requirement yeah. eventually that they sit down and work yeah. it out. There should not be heavy size when I say, isn't the goal peace? <laughs> I think that we're in a really dangerous place at that point. But um, yeah, people can check out the interview in full. It I'm was, not hiding the ball good. here. Thank you. I appreciate that, Robbie. Stuff. We'll have more rising for you after this. Yesterday, former President Donald Trump weighed in on the alleged attack against Paul Pelosi, casting doubt on what officials say really happened. He said, quote, the whole thing is crazy. I mean, if there's even a little bit of truth to what's being said, it's crazy. But the window was broken in and it was strange. The cops were standing there practically from the moment it all took place. Documents from the investigation have confirmed a break-in occurred and largely debunked theories suggesting Pelosi knew his attacker. However, yesterday we learned the man allegedly behind the attack, David DePape, entered a not guilty plea to state charges. He is accused of six charges, including attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, residential burglary, false imprisonment, and threatening the life or serious bodily harm to a public official. CNN reported yesterday that police will release the audio of Paul Pelosi's 911 call, as well as the body cam footage of the attack to the Pelosi family. No plans to release such evidence to the public have been announced. But <laughs> as I keep saying, we don't really need... I mean, I mean, that would be, I guess, helpful to clear up to, to clear up some people still having issues with this. But they interview the police interviewed the guy, mm -hmm. and he has confessed. He said in the police interview, he explained exactly what he was there to do: that he was there to take Nancy Pelosi captive, maybe to physic to break her kneecaps. Yeah. He brought a hammer, contrary to what Donald Trump said, yeah. and very clearly said in this interview. He he said the glass was broken the wrong way; it was a break out rather than a break in. That is not true. Mm. Like in the initial. Hours of a, of a big story, there's always bad reporting. Oftentimes in shootings, uh, in mass shootings, mm -hmm. you'll hear reports of a second shooter that are almost always false. Mm. It's ju that's just the nature of the beast. So you got to just shut up for five seconds yeah. and wait. And, but now, now we're several days later and Donald Trump is saying things that are just not true about this. So it was, the, the glass was broken exactly the way glass breaks. If you're breaking into someone's house with a hammer, yeah. um, not, not that I know from personal experience, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, hit the glass and it breaks that way. Yeah. So it, look, it was a break-in. That's what Paul Pelosi said it was. That's what the police said it was. And that's what the suspect says it was. There is no conflicting account to adjudicate. Yeah, I think <laughs> that what people are hoping 
well, I, don't, I won't speak for the former president, but I do think that some folks were hoping for the salacious, salacious angle, even if it's true that the intruder did the thing that he's accused of. And even if it's true that he confessed, they wanted there to be a secret lover. They wanted them to, there to be some scandal, even though that obviously would not mitigate the tragedy of yeah. somebody attacking you with a hammer and gr- injuring you in these really serious ways. And that, you know, that's the part that's just so kind of <laughs> dispiriting about where we are as a country. And I don't, I don't even necessarily, it's hard to say this, but like, I, I do believe that if the shoe were on, on the other foot, there's plenty of Democrats who would roll their eyes and say, I don't care what happens to Donald Trump. Right. That's yeah, where I we mean, are politically. Nancy Pelosi's daughter said the made fun of Rand Paul for getting really seriously attacked by his neighbor and is not the only one. Tons yeah, of people did that. That was a yeah. very popular thing, even in fairly mainstream Democratic yes. circles to be like, oh, Rand Paul's neighbor. Yeah. You know, buy that guy a drink, that kind of thing. Yeah. So at the same time, um, I think Trump's behavior is bad and everybody's behavior yeah. who has been kind of mocking this and turning this into a Halloween costume and stuff is bad. Like, I do think the bigger problem isn't Republicans bad. Yeah. <laughs> it is that we are in this political culture where there is abs- the public trust has gone so downhill that there's not even the, like the basic, most basic right. marginal respect for other people's human decency. But I, and, and to be clear, I would, I, I criticized all those people for doing that. Yeah. I would, I would jump all over them for doing that. Yeah. I have jumped all over them in the past. People on the right would jump all over them. And I think correctly. So, but, but this is like, this is a very similar thing. So what are you doing? Like uh, Donald Trump Jr. is like shared a Halloween costume right. about underwear and hammer. And again, the, the reporting apparently that the assailant was naked or undressed it now seems to be not true. Um, Paul Pelosi was undressed because he was dragged out of bed. his bed in the middle yeah. of the night. Can you imagine how terrifying that would yeah. be? Have someone standing over you with a hammer telling you to get out of bed? Well, bad look, stuff. I, I don't mean to make everything about the midterms, but this does kind of feel like where our politics has brought us. If we are now all conditioned to say, yeah. we're going to vote blue no matter who, no matter how, you know, difficult John Fetterman's debate performance was to watch. If we're going to vote red, no matter you guys have got it, Republicans have got to come up with a better like rhyming <laughs> slogan for that. But if you have to vote, vote red, vote or red. You'll all be dead. <laughs> vote red or you'll all be dead for Herschel Walker, despite him not seeming to know what is going right. on in most instances, or, you know, all of the obviously accusations about, uh, having paid for various abortions, then voters are trained. The public is trained to ignore the bad acts of politicians. And there's absolutely no accountability mechanism for people saying wild, crazy stuff. I I mean, I think this, so this is an issue with the mainstream media's credibility because the mainstream media is telling people, you know, this is what happened. And people have this instinctive distrust because look, I understand they remember things like Jesse Smollett or Kyle Rittenhouse or, you know, cases where what you were being told, it was much more complicated or maybe yeah. totally false as was in the Jesse Smollett case. Yeah. The right Kyle Rittenhouse, the details were much different. Even to even up to the point of the trial, you had mainstream media still saying that his victims were black yeah. and they had been disarmed, et cetera. Um, the Covington boy, like there, there's mm-hmm. so many, there are now so many instances of mainstream big mainstream media screw ups where it was right. The impulse to question the narrative. It's not that the impulse to question the narrative is, is wrong. That is a good impulse yeah. that serves alternative uh, thinkers and writers and journalists. Well, I, it serves us well. We all, we often challenge that we're challenging the mainstream consensus on, on Ukraine and on many other subjects on the show. So that is a good impulse, mm-hmm. but it has to be tempered with some 
kind of a, a more basic willingness to grapple with actual facts yeah. and to like like not everything the mainstream media says is wrong or lies. They yeah. do get stuff wrong. It's, it's troubling when we have mainstream conservatives believing that there's kitty litter boxes in American classrooms because kids are identifying as cats and just taking that at mm-hmm. face value. Sorry, Joe Rogan, you got that one wrong. But it's also troubling when we, you know, the, the story came out about um, the 10-year-old who needed abortion services and there was an implication that that was false and that turned out, turned out to be true. Yep, yep, and so yep. I understand, I take your point, skepticism is kind of necessary in this space, but especially if you're a journalist or a high profile person like the former president of the United States, you got to one, just give it a beat before you weigh in and two, not ignore the facts as they come out. Yeah. And now the facts are out. Yeah. So now, so, so not saying anything for a while and just like privately sharing, you're like, oh, but who opened the door if he'd already been hit by a hammer? Yeah, that is kind of weird. Well, now we know he opened the door and then he got hit with a hammer. Yeah. Okay, we solved that yeah. one. Why does it why did he say he was his friend on the 911 call? Okay, he didn't say he was his friend and he was trying to not have the guy attack him. So right. he was trying to communicate to the police that there was an invader in the home yeah. without making the invader like that all makes sense. We right. can put it together. Right. So I, I get why people had questions, but sure. you just just gotta be a little careful. Yeah. A little empathetic, a little and, and reach for it because usually the most Obvious explanation is usually the explanation. Occam's yeah. razor. Not always, because weird stuff does happen. But um, again, there's no there's no other side to this. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well said, Robbie. Thank you. We'll have more rising for you right after this. An interim report released by the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions concluded that COVID was, quote, more than likely the result of a research accident in Wuhan. And according to a bombshell report by Vanity Fair and ProPublica published last week, the Wuhan Institute of Virology dispatchers signaled that they faced a, quote, acute safety emergency in November of 2019. Officials at the highest level of the Chinese government weighed in and urgent action was taken in an effort to address ongoing safety issues. The documents do not make clear who is responsible for the crisis, which laboratory it affected specifically, or what the exact nature of the biosafety emergency was. Joining us now to expand on this is reporter at U.S. Right to Know, Emily Cobb. Welcome, Emily. Hey, great to be here. So help us understand what is new. Obviously, folks have been following this story for a really long time. Um, what, what is what what is new in this in this new story? So what's interesting about this report is it actually draws on public sources. Um, so that um, sort of memo from the Wuhan Institute of Virology is actually public on the on the WIF site. Um, and what uh, the Senate committee attempted to do is essentially decode um, what is called you know, party speak. So how the CCP might have signaled internal um, goings on at the lab and what the Senate committee's um, staff concluded is that this was a sort of a siren to um, hires up that something had gone very wrong. Now, this report, it should be said, has touched off an enormous debate um, in the last few days because there are, um, I think, serious um, questions about whether the Senate committee misinterpreted those reports. Um, So, we can dive into those, but probably the biggest um, question around this is um, the fact that that sort of memo about a 
possible serious safety issue at the Wuhan Institute of Virology may have originally been published in August 2019. Um, That doesn't rule out a lab leak. Of course, we know that the Wuhan Institute of Virology's enormous um, database of bat coronaviruses went offline around September 2019. Um, And we also don't know why they would have republished um, this memo in November 2019, which seems to have led to sort of the confusion. Um, but there are accusations of mistranslation and some some factual errors. Um, so, well, Emily, to- what what other than the fact that there is you know there was a, an emergency and the timing seemed to be pegged toward COVID leads people to believe that the the emergency described in this memo was in fact. COVID escaping. Yeah. So the report also goes into some serious questions about whether biosafety standards at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were up to code. Um, we know that in the years before the pandemic, the the Wuhan lab was trying to get its BSL-4 lab up and running. That is sort of the maximum biocontainment um, standard. And I personally can say, having read like a mind-numbing number of documents um, under FOIA sort of related to biosafety standards at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, this is a real concern. Um, There were U.S. scientists who were working with the lab um, to train some of their scientists so that they would understand how to help operate um, a maximum biosecurity lab. Um, But I think those um, real concerns have sort of been overshadowed by um, whether or not this sort of one finding about this one memo was overstated by the committee. Right. And to be clear, those concerns are are significant anyway. You were talking about um, uh, what sort of disinfectants they were using. I believe that was an issue there. They didn't know if the disinfectants they were using were good enough or would have or were reacting to the the surfaces that they were. It was was not like what the building was consisted of was not right for what the disinfectants they were using. Also questions for how long about how long scientists were in lab suits for hours and hours and hours to the point where they might be exhausted and they might be dehydrated and they might be more prone to error. Uh, Right. Can you talk about the the things of that nature in the report? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm no expert in um, the CCP, but I just put in some of the memos into Google Translate and some of the things that they were talking about were pretty alarming, as you mentioned, Um, sort of being in the lab for five or six hours straight without being able to go to the bathroom or being able to eat. Um, They talked about some flooding that had happened at the lab. Um, And so it's clear to me, just having read sort of communications between U.S. labs and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that there was this really ambitious push to um, have a state-of-the-art lab in Wuhan. Um, And of course, they had this sort of um, enormous store of bat coronaviruses, including SARS-related bat coronaviruses that they sample from Southeast China. Um, And the question is whether their biosafety standards sort of met their ambitions. Um, and I, I think that's a, a real question. So. Well, according to a preprint released last Friday, COVID-19's genome shows signs consistent with genetic manipulation, which could be evidence that the virus originated in a lab. And Emily broke down those signs in her latest reporting for U.S. Right to Know. So what is the significance of this finding? 
Yeah. So this is another really interesting sort of development in recent days. There was a preprint that alleged that um, something called uh, restriction sites in the SARS-CoV-2 genome appear to be um, unusually regularly spaced. Um, and essentially, restriction sites are used um, by bioengineers to cut DNA at certain places. And the restriction sites in the SARS-CoV-2 genome appear to be ideal for um, a sort of experiment that you would want to do to, say, like, swap out a spike protein. Um, and so that raised some eyebrows. It got um, a lot of feedback on Twitter <laughs> just put it nicely. Um, and so that too has touched off an entire controversy. Well, what, what do you mean, Emily? Is there controversy or people pushing back against it? And if so, what's, what's the claim? Sure. So some of the major criticisms were that a sort of, uh, classic approach to this sort of genetic engineering would, actually remove the restriction sites that the preprint authors were looking at. Mm. Um, these are called scars, sort of in the, the verbiage of a synthetic biology. And ideally, um, you would want a scarless um, genome without those um, restriction sites. But the authors have sort of pointed out and have cited the scientific literature that says oftentimes when researchers want to sort of plug and play and do multiple experiments with the same synthetic virus, they will leave in these restriction sites or these scars. Hmm. Um, so that was one major critique. Another critique is that um, these restriction sites could have resulted from recombination. In other words, sort of viruses naturally exchanging their, their DNA. Um, and so... So yeah, those are the two main ones. Um, I will say this week has been really interesting because I think both with the Senate report and with this preprint, we've seen people sort of do hard research and take big swings and take risks in order to help you know, us process this sort of enormous circumstantial evidence around the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And we've seen enormous pushback from the scientific community and from the media. And um, it's it's an interesting dynamic, but I kind of wish that the scientific community and the media would be directing some of that same energy to, you know, also helping process the enormous mm. circumstantial evidence around the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a very good point. I feel like the ground is sh shifting, or the consensus is shifting a little bit, but maybe not at all within uh, within the media or within you know the kind of experts that are really bought into the explanation they had before but we will see um, Emily thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it yeah thanks for having me on According to a recent investigation by The Intercept, the Department of Homeland Security is quietly expanding efforts to censor speech it considers dangerous on various tech platforms. According to the Capstone Report, the department plans to target inaccurate information on topics that include the origin of COVID, vaccine efficacy, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the U.S. support of Ukraine. The Intercept's investigation was spearheaded by Ken Klippenstein and Lee Fong. Lee discussed the findings on Tucker Carlson Monday night. Let's listen to some of that. 
Uh, the story also just looks at the mission creep of DHS. This, this is an agency that was founded in the aftermath of 9-11 to combat foreign terror threats of al-Qaeda and the like. Um, but over the last five years, it's kind of uh, evolved in its mission. It's moved towards fighting disinfo, and their justification is, you know, uh, disinformation radicalizes uh, the homeland. It can lead to disruptions in public health or in political violence. Um, so they, they, yeah. they have a justification. We have these documents, and, and they're pushing forward uh, with this broad uh, censorship agenda. Joining us now to expand on their findings is investigative reporter at The Intercept, Ken Klippenstein. Welcome, Ken. Hey, good to be with you guys. All right. So we saw a kind of disinformation effort crash and burn earlier this year. There were there were musical lyrics involved. There was a lot of tomfoolery. And it seemed like the, you know, unwinding that plan showed a little bit of insight on the behalf of the Biden administration that at least the way that they were going about doing it wasn't flying for the public. What in this reporting indicates, if at all, that there is an understanding that the public doesn't basically trust what the government will and will not consider to be information, is there any disinformation rather, is there any transparency involved in anything that you've looked at that would give people any assurances that we're not headed down the same rabbit hole? Well, unfortunately, a lot of this is being done in private in the form of biweekly meetings between uh, some of the biggest tech giants like uh, Facebook, uh, Google and Twitter and um, uh, officials from not just the Department of Homeland Security, but um, the FBI and other federal agencies as well. Um, now, what the agencies say is uh, we're not requiring any of this. We're just issuing recommendations and the government can act on that. Um, you know, while that's technically true, I think that's a little misleading. Uh, if only because these same companies are lobbying the federal government for preferential treatment. And so I imagine they're not going to want to antagonize that same uh, government that they're relying on for whatever it is they're lobbying um, them for. So um, these biweekly meetings have taken place as recently as this summer. That doesn't mean that they're not still taking place. I imagine that they are. That's just what I have the um, most recent evidence for. And, um, you know, some of this was public. Um, it's not secret that under uh, the Department of Homeland Security's child agency, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, they had established something called the MDM team, which stands for the Misinformation, Disinformation, and Malinformation team that is designed to interface, um, as the documents that I was provided shows, um, inter interface with uh, these different private uh, tech platforms to discuss with them uh, what they think uh, represents a dangerous information. Right. And obviously this is, you know, related. We've seen a lot of this kind of thing with, uh, you know, with the administration, actually even within the uh, the White House, right, uh, communicating to uh, social media platforms, uh, specifically on COVID topics. Um, Alex Berenson, who was banned from, uh, you know, as a kind of anti-vaccine uh, voice, was banned from Twitter and then re later reinstated and has shared lots of documents showing, you know, emails from Biden of White House people to the social media companies that are right there right at that line because they know they can, it would violate the First Amendment to explicitly say we are ordering you to take down this speech or take down this person. So it, instead, it's this kind of, it's this push. Well, we would like you to do it. This would be better, et cetera. Um, you know, how, you see, so what DHS is doing is, I, I think, related to that, but um, in some ways even more nefarious because it's being done under the auspices, uh, like Lee suggested in that discussion with Tucker, of, of kind of national security creep and national security overreach. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one thing that's important to stress, I think there's been a lot of efforts to kind of 
uh, twist this story into a sort of uh, partisan one, and not that it doesn't, you know, have political dimensions, but um, this uh, disinformation effort on the part of DHS began in 2018 under the Trump administration, and so I think the seeds of this were the 2016 uh, Russia disinformation, and so DHS comes to uh, the the federal government in Congress saying, hey, so you guys have a disinformation election problems, so we've got midterms coming up in 2018. Let us, you know, let us play some role in this so that uh, 2016 doesn't happen again. And uh, that's really where it begins in 2018. And it certainly, you know, accelerated and intensified under the Biden administration. But what what it first started out as is um, elections disinformation response. And if you look at the names of some of these agencies, the MDM team that I mentioned before was originally called the Countering Foreign Influence uh, Task Force. And the FBI has a similarly named uh, task force that they have working on these things. So what we're seeing really it, come 2020 is its expansion to encompass um, coronavirus disinformation. And then now under the Biden administration, as you mentioned, it seems to be expanding further. Yeah, I think that's a great point to always make, given all this uh, Republican complaining about what social media policies are and then what, you know, what the Biden administration is pushing them to do. Uh, complaints that I think are totally legitimate, but that, you know, the conservatives when in power totally missed, totally blew right. their opportunity to unwind some of these security programs to, to you know, less, to lessen the reach, to rein in the, these agencies um, that conserv- conservatives are now very mad at these agencies, but made absolutely no effort to, um, to hold them back um, while they while they had the when they had the opportunity to do, to do so. Exactly. It seems like uh, censorship is one of those things that when you're in power, suddenly your yeah. compunctions kind of disappear. <laughs> and uh-huh. so my, my hope is that people will view this in a in a you know nonpartisan lens and just see that this can be turned at all sorts of different subjects and indeed is. Well, hope is one might that that happens. Uh, Lee's appearance on Tucker sparked some major online backlash, especially from the left. Um, I, I personally think that this story should be covered on every major outlet. It's a huge story, but we saw a lot of folks um, characterizing it as a right-wing story simply because Lee went on. Tucker, I, I got to ask you, have you gotten offers to go on other um, ideologically diverse outlets other than this one? Um, actually, yeah, although the sort of mainstream media coverage uh, has been a lot less than like the, the, the popularity on independent outlets uh, would suggest, which is uh, funny to me because so much of the story was based on primary source documents. It's not uh-huh. like we're, you know, I mean, I do have some anonymous sources, but that's just to give uh, color to it. All of this is stuff that you can look at um, the underlying documents and corroborate for yourself. So there's no question as to the authenticity of it. Um, I wonder if, um, you know, it's a question of what I said before, that, you know, when one party's in power, that that group tends not to care about uh, questions of uh, speech. Yeah, it's interesting that I I do have the sense that the mainstream media has been much less interested in this category of story right now. The the pressure from government figures uh, onto social media, onto platforms about these topics. And I I have to think part of that is because of what seems to be a tremendous um, intellectual or philosophical buy-in to the idea that policing bad speech on social media is, is really good. And if the government is assisting platforms in doing it, that's, you know, a, a plus. That seems to be a perspective that I encounter within the mainstream media. A lot a lot of mainstream media outlets have like, right, disinformation reporters now that, um, that, that are not, that it looks to me are not just calling out actual cases of bad information, but take a kind of apocalyptic, like, oh no, what if somebody sees this? You know, this has to be, this has to be gotten rid of because it, 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 it is itself some kind of virus that is contagious. So that, that kind of thing. Am I, am I off on that or have you noticed that as well? 
No, I think you're right. I, I mean, this is much bigger than a White House thing. Everybody wants to make this a Trump thing or a Biden thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the reality is uh, this is probably a, a society-wide thing and it's a national security story. So a lot of this is happening at the administrative level within these agencies that I wouldn't be surprised if you know, either of the two White Houses that presided over this were aware of the full extent of what was going on. And I wonder if this reflects the um, shifting attitudes within the country. I looked at some polling uh, very recently that showed that um, during the coronavirus pandemic, a really surprising amount of Americans, uh, at least in the poll, expressed uh, support for taking down uh, what they consider disinformation about COVID. And so when the public opinion shifts like that, um, the national security state, they pay attention to these things and they realize, okay, this gives us some more space uh, to expand our own authorities. And so um, my impression is that a lot of this is happening at the administrative level and it's not it's not this sort of partisan thing, uh, at least not to the extent that people think it is. Uh, That's scary stuff. I appreciate your being here today and covering this important story. Thanks so much, guys. Some say crime has become the dark horse issue of the November midterms, according to CNN Politics, that is. While polling reveals that the economy still ranks as the top issue on voters' minds, crime is next. 71% of registered voters say it's either extremely or very important. Pew Research data shows amongst registered Democrats, 82% of black voters and 33% of white voters see violent crime as a very important voting issue this year. Joining us now to weigh in is movement lawyer Olaimi Olerin and Nick O'Neill Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, Raphael Manguel. Welcome to you both. Oh, hey, good morning. So I'll start with you, Ole. What do you make of the gap between uh, white voters and black voters with black voters saying that they prefer uh, that they value or prioritize crime more as an issue, yet them identifying more and voting more for Democrats who broadly in the cultural discourse are being characterized as, as soft on crime, as it were? You know, it's this whole myth that only half of the spectrum cares about crime. Everybody cares about crime in the sense that everyone is concerned about safety. That's not the disagreement. No one has ever disputed that black people care about crime too and white people care about crime. It's about how we respond to it. It's this idea that caring about crime is synonymous with supporting tough on crime, tough on crime policies. And that is just not true. I think also we have to talk about uh, what's effective and ineffective. America is always, well, first of all, America has always cared about crime. Crime has always been a top issue and a top thing that's discussed in our media and in our elections has always been it. I also think it's worth mentioning that this poll is discussing uh, that Americans feel, they feel like crime is raised rather than any actual facts about whether or not crime is actually up because there's a lot to do with the fear mongering in the media and why people feel unsafe, whether or not they are safe. But here, I think what this actually just boils down to is we have different ideas on how we respond to crime and how we address public safety. It's not really so much about crime so much as it's about safety. And right now, We've continued to put tons and tons of money, America puts more money into prison and policing and addressing crime. That's way an ineffective, proven ineffective method for addressing crime for decades and decades and decades, and it hasn't done anything. So to me, it's not really so much about whether or not we care about crime or who cares about it more, what the, the gap is. I think we all care about crime and public safety. I think it's just about certain groups and different advocates recognizing that policing and mass incarceration doesn't do anything to address public safety. Raphael, I want to get your perspective on this uh, crime getting much worse in some, at least some places. Uh, Philadelphia, for instance, is is really suffering right now. Uh, what are the policy, you know, if Republicans want to run on this issue successfully and say that Democratic policies have left some of our cities vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera, um, what are Republicans saying that they're going to do differently or what should they be saying? 
Well, I think what their focus needs to be is highlighting the fact that the Democrats have sort of made it part of their central brand that they are for decarceration and depolicing. They are for uh, diverting more people away from prisons and jails. They are for releasing more people from prisons and jails. You have the you know the Cut Fifty initiative, uh, which Biden you know uh, committed to supporting while on the campaign trail. I think Republicans need to do the work of showing what the connection is between that kind of policy agenda and the sorts of crimes that people are worried about. And the reality is that the vast majority of people in prison today are people who have somewhere between 10 and 12 prior arrests and five and six prior convictions. These are not people who've been denied second chances. These are people who pose a significant threat to the public. We know that because the, the recidivism data tells us that 83% of people released from state prison in the U.S. are going to go on to reoffend at least once, which means that prison is already largely reserved for repeat chronic offenders who have a very high likelihood of going on to commit more crimes. If we push a policy agenda that is going to put more of those individuals on the street, we're going to see more victimizations as a result. And that's, I think, the message that that um, Republicans would be most effective uh, at pushing right now. Well, I, mean, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. It's so funny how we use the like mass incarceration and mass incarceration's failures as a grounds and argument for why we should continue to mass incarcerate. The reality is we currently have mass incarceration. And despite the statistics that you're pointing out, first and foremost, over 80% of the criminal cases that are in our legal system are misdemeanors, traffic offenses, or nonviolent crime. It has nothing to do with violent crime. That's first and foremost. But second of all, saying that we have a criminal system that preys on particular populations, because that's the truth. The, the vast majority of the people in our criminal sense, are, our criminal system are poor, are living beneath the poverty line, are represented by public defenders. So taking the fact that poor people already disproportionately incarcerated and profiled by a criminal system and then put into a, a prison and use uh, come with all the collateral consequences that come with that, the rap sheet, the inability to get a job, the inability to get housing and everything that comes from that. And then say, hey, those populations that we have criminalized and we put into, into uh, uh, prison, they continue, they're recidivists. They continue to do the same thing. And we continue to put them back there. So it sounds like the approach to addressing crime has been ineffective. That's what we're saying. And as much as I would love, I, I would love for it to be what you're saying about the Democrats be true, that they have embraced a, a, a profile, a platform of decarcerating and moving us away from mass incarceration. That would be, that would be beautiful if they have, but they haven't. If you look at places like New York City, Philadelphia, Chicago, all these places that they keep trying to paint as Gotham City or the most dangerous places ever, despite the fact that not only do Republican and rural areas have more crime per capita, but New York City and places like this spend more money on policing and mass incarceration than anybody else. So we have to pick a struggle. It can't just be, oh, mass incarceration and policing and incarceration, that's what's linked to public safety, which by the way, tons of uh, statistics and studies have already showed that that's not the case. But more importantly, we're already doing it. So if the problem is that, oh, we mass incarceration and policing and prisons is what we should be doing to address address crime, well, we're already doing it. And according to y'all, it's not safe, it's not working. So how could that be the successful platform that people should be running on? Well, Rafael, let me ask you this. For example, about half, 53% of LA's budget, the entire city budget is devoted to funding policing. Do you think that a larger percentage of the city budget budget should be going to policing? Is the answer to continue to throw money at the issue as LA points has been the plan for the last 
however many decades that this country has existed and the police force has existed. At what point do you think a strategy change needs to be implemented if there is, in fact, no correlation between driving up police funding to, again, 50 percent of the city budget, more than all of the other social support services that keep people out of poverty and all the other drivers of crime? At what point do we, is it better to reinvest those funds elsewhere if it's clear that just more and more money isn't correlating with lower uh, incidents of crime? Well, I think the first thing to address is that it's actually not clear that more money directed toward policing isn't correlated with crime. Every single study that's ever been done of investments in policing shows positive returns on those investments. I mean, um, that's, I mean I'm sorry, Rafael, but one... that's very, very plainly not not true. I, I couldn't can, can you cite more. a specific I mean, study? I can, I'm happy to pull it up. Yeah, sure. Aaron Chalfin looked at uh, police spending in 2010 and found a $1.63 return for every dollar spent on, poli on policing in 2010. You have the paper out of the University of Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, I don't McDonald's. understand what that means. Can you, can you help me understand what it means to have a $1.63 return on a dollar worth of spending on the police? Sure. For every dollar spent on policing, they were able to calculate the reduced victimization cost, which mainly came from a reduction in homicides. Aaron Chalfin, along with Morgan Williams and a couple of other economists, were also the lead authors of a study showing that for every single police officer hired, you abate 0.1 homicides. Um, and that those effects are felt twice as much in the black community as in the white community. So the, that that's just one of or two of very many studies showing that when you invest more in police and when you increase police presence, you reduce crime in that area. So it's Raphael, one of the, the, the I, most I, common help, help findings in the criminological literature. Help me understand this, then. You're arguing that Democrats have defunded the police. In fact, Democrats have raised police budgets across the country. At the same time, conservatives are saying that crime rates are up. Now, mostly there's a lot of reporting on crime rates that have given people a sense that crime rates are up. But regardless, if crime rates are up, is the argument. And also, Democrats have, in fact, been fighting the police harder. I wish that weren't the case. I don't believe in that as a policy, but they have, in fact, doing been doing it. I, I don't understand. They're already doing what you want them to do. So it's hard for me to, to grasp what the argument is here. How can you claim that there is a correlation between lower crime rates and uh, lower police funding when we're seeing higher crime rates and higher police funding? Well, it would be because even higher than if we were not doing the investment of policing exactly. that we're doing the, the, now. The, the right, question is, is whether or not suggests. we are worse off than we otherwise would have been so so taking the right so, steps. And that's, go ahead, that's the answer to the question, right? That, <laughs> sorry, but, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Erica. America makes up, what, 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's incarcerated population. America spends about $277 billion on policing every year and another $80 billion on prison. If we're looking at a place like New York City, which is the place that people like to use as a target for Gotham City, we have 35,000 officers in the NYPD. We give over $10.4 billion in spending. We give $860 million in Rikers. And we've increased that number every year. We have continued to increase, even from 2020 to now, we've increased police funding. We you increase the amount of money we put in mass incarceration. And according to what y'all are saying, it is not safer. So tell me how the strategy, and by the way, Democrats, Democratic mayor, Democratic governor, Democrat in every office, Democrat in the DA's office, and they are Democrats that are in fact putting more money into policing and mass incarceration. So which is it? Again, which is it? Is it the fact, or we, I mean, is it dangerous because we're not putting enough money into to policing and mass incarceration? Are Democrats failing because they, they, they are not arguing this enough, or they have a decarcerated well, I, platform? acknowledge that they don't have that. 
I mean, I think it's really easy to just continue to say the opposite of what's true. But the reality is that the NYPD is down more than 7% of its officers since 2020. The reality is, is that the New York State has instituted bail reform. It's instituted but, discovery reform. It's Raphael, instituted raise the age legislation. It's instituted less is more. <laughs> right, right, I, I understand that. Police officers the, the, the chose idea, to leave. That wasn't a defunding the police issue. Well, we're talking about police funding, was. not police I, deciding. I didn't say that it was, but we did cut an entire two entire academy classes. It's a result of the defunding, and that creates there, lag. There wasn't defunding, Raphael. We, we have to be but, clear about what was and wasn't done. There, but there, there was, okay, let's look at, uh, Raphael, but, I want to get your perspective on what's going on. Again, I point to Philadelphia, where the violent crime rate is, everyone admits, is up very precipitously. Uh, the, the youth gun deaths uh, way, way, way up. And I'm looking at this report uh, produced by um, uh, Philadelphia lawmakers, Philadelphia House, criticizing Larry Krasner, the progressive um, uh, um, uh, uh, prosecutor, who has not been, according to this report, prosecuting um, gun illegal gun possessions. And so there are more people with illegal guns on the streets and thus more crime. That's the, Im that's the implication here, which does, um, in my view, you know, what's your perspective on that, Raphael? Do does impugn I mean, I, progressive policies? Yeah, I, I think that's just one example of lowering the transaction costs of crime and and making it more likely that you're going to see exactly that kind of behavior. I mean, the idea that Larry Krasner diverting a significantly higher rate of gun offenders than his predecessor has not impacted public safety is, I think, one of the silliest ideas that you could perpetrate. And it's not one that's actually been looked at by any of the studies that people will point to to claim that progressive prosecution doesn't have an effect on crime, right? These studies showing, for example, that, you know, you can pick out progressive prosecutor cities that had lower crime increases than non Progressive prosecutor cities. Well, you know, that doesn't really tell you a lot, especially given the fact that Baltimore is one of them, which, but the reason for that is, is that it peaked in 2019 and set an all-time homicide rate record. And so the fact that crime went down in 2020 in Baltimore, despite having having Marilyn Mosby as the progressive prosecutor, doesn't tell you anything about what progressive prosecutors do or don't do. Again, I mean, what you have here is a kind of rhetorical ploy where you pretend that the, the, the argument is something that, that it's not. The argument here is not that progressive prosecutors are responsible for the entirety of the uptake. The argument here is that these policies leave us worse off than we otherwise would be. And that's not been tested by any of the studies that have been pointed to. Well, Raphael, I do want to ask you about this because there was a study that came out. Um, there was a recent, more recent study than this, but there's something called the red state murder problem, where mm -hmm. homicide rates are especially high in conservative states, and that's been linked to gun policies there. And very rarely, and I, and I think it's just, it's this is right that, that this doesn't happen a lot. Very rarely do you hear Democrats saying, hey, the it's Republican like tough on crime policy. There isn't a pointing to gun policies for sure. But the idea that different groups of people, because of who runs a state, are kind of um, insensitive to crime as a consequence of crimes happening in their state, I think is a kind of craven and not especially productive way to go about talking about these issues. So I have no interest in blaming people in red states for horrible tragedies that are happening there. But it does seem to be a really selective bias that says, well, crime is up all over the country. It's not, but the crime is up all over the country. This this city, it's, which is a large metropolis, which tend to be Democrat because people of color live there and uh, are fans of the historical social programs that allowed people of color to have ac access to the franchise, et cetera. And therefore, there more, there's more crime there when, of course, similar things are happening in red states where there are a, a high crime rates, et cetera. 
what is the solution in your view to actually bringing down crime? If again, crime is very much correlated to poverty. When you see downswings in crime, it's often because people who are committing the crimes are no longer in those precarious situations. You point to the idea that there's a marginal benefit to spending more dollars on police, but studies have been very clear that there's a much greater benefit in investing in communities and making sure that people aren't poor to begin with. So what's the cost benefit analysis? Do you think it's right for a city to be spending 50% of its funding on police um, police officers? Yeah, well, I think one thing to be clear about is, if I'm not mistaken, that, that figure of 53% uh, doesn't account for the fact that LA gets a lot of its, um, LA City gets a lot of its um, uh, funding for other social services from the county and the state. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 that, that may not exactly be representative of what other cities are doing. But I also want to push is. back on the idea it is. that it's there's pretty a correlation. Uniform. But I, I want to push back on the idea that there's a correlation here between poverty and the sort of violence that we've seen actually go up. That's just not true. I mean, take New York City, for example, 1989, which is the year before New York City peaked with 2,262 homicides. Our citywide poverty rate was actually slightly lower than it was in 2016, which is the year before we hit our valley of 292 homicides. So we decreased homicides by about 90 percent, where poverty didn't move almost at all. In fact, it moved slightly in the wrong direction. We didn't see crime go up during the Great um, Recession, where we had the unemployment rate across the nation nearly double. During that time, the homicide rate declined by 15%. We didn't see a homicide spike during the Great Depression in the United States. We did see one during the 1920s, which is one of the periods of economic boom in this country. So the idea that there's a clear correlation between poverty and violence, I think is just There isn't um, a clear, that's wrong. a straw man, Raphael. And you, your, your argument basically is that during, while people were quarantined, crime was well, down, so poverty didn't have, have the last effect. word on this. Go, go no, ahead, I don't have the last word. I just, I, honestly, I really don't. I really just wanted to clarify that we're really making the argument that like we, we came up with it, essentially. The, the, the correlation between poverty and crime is hilarious. We have a criminal system that the vast majority of everybody in the system is broke, destitute. Over 60% of the people that are in our criminal system, over 2 million people are incarcerated in this country, 400,000 of which I held pretrial, and over 60% of them made less than $12,000 annually prior to arrest. Poverty is what's in our system. I'm not asking you, unfortunately, I'm telling you, the majority of the people that are being represented in our system are represented by public defenders, which means they are underneath the poverty line, which is saying is just not the case. If you look well, at it, saying, he's saying that the crime rate doesn't track the poverty rate, not that criminals are not poor. Right. right. This, no, this doesn't it, tell it you does. anything about this it, it, doesn't it, tell you anything about which direction the causation well, your, your is. Well, your fields right? and vibes so the, the, the doesn't matter if that's not what the data shows. The data shows it very clearly, though, Robbie. That's what's so concerning. There's a but it does. But it clearly it, it really doesn't. doesn't because it, it, it doesn't tell does. you. It doesn't. It doesn't tell you what direction the causation runs. Right. The fact that the vast majority of people who come into contact with the criminal justice system are poor does not tell you that poverty causes violence because most poor people are not criminals and they're not violent criminals right the reality is is that the sorts of dispositions that are uh, that are likely to result in poor performance in our economic system are also likely to be correlated with criminal activity that's the reality the fact of the matter is is that more common in the prison population in the united states is antisocial personality disorder which has a prevalence rate among men in the general population of between two and four percent but a prevalence rate in yeah. prison settings of between 40 and 70%. Raphael, Way I more really want to let Olay get, it, get a right. chance to get it. Yeah, go, go ahead, Olay. 
You're right that we do have a criminal system that's filled with mentally ill people and people that are not getting mental health services, right? People with mental health issues are three to four times more likely to end up incarcerated in America. That is an aggravating factor to your point, not a mitigating factor. Additionally, as much as you want to focus on violent crime, violent crime, and say all these different things and suggest that one, poverty has nothing to do with violence, which is absurd. But the, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, over 80% of the things in our criminal system have nothing to do with violent crime. They're misdemeanors, traffic offenses, or nonviolent crime. So you can't can't just want to take out poverty and analysis to focus on sensationalizing violent crime when the majority of the people sitting in our criminal system are there for nonviolent crime. So anyway, but I respectfully, I, re I respect your, your, your disagreement on the topic. Well, thank you both so much. Unfortunately, we got to leave it there. Uh, really appreciate you both, Olaimi Aluren and Raphael Mengual. Thanks so much. Pennsylvania Democratic candidate John Fetterman would not confirm whether he'd release his medical records to the public. Here's what he said in an interview with CNN's Don Lemon. Watch. Well, I think we've been pretty transparent. You know, we've we've had our doctors uh, just be very clear that that they're here, that we're able to and, and fit to, to to serve. And from my point, um, uh, you know, we've been also been very transparent in terms of showing up at a debate and very transparent about you know having events in front of thousands and thousands of Pennsylvanians for for, for months. And I was again, no, it was no secret that I was going to miss some words. I was going to mush some words together. Uh, and and as we've been been very clear in the debate and during during this this interview I'm, i've been using captioning as well true i believe uh, we've been pretty transparent to give all the voters to to make it their their, their choice and listen I, i'm asking the question for the voters because then voters may may wonder is there a reason that you don't want your doctors to take questions that's why i keep asking this Oh, I, I just I just believe that we have our doctors uh, just weigh in on that and, and they believe that I'm fit, uh, to, fit, fit to serve. Fetterman's ability to serve as senator has come under scrutiny since he suffered a stroke earlier this year. And he's been transparent about relying on closed captioning. He's continuing to campaign, but questions still remain. Lemon pressed him on an issue on the ballot inflation. Let's watch that. No, I, I just do. I, I think the, it, that simply is also we have this talk about the trillions in, in massive tax uh, tax uh, cuts to the corporate uh, tax uh, structure as well. True, you know, trillions of dollars that have added to the deficit, and and now they still want to support those as well. True. Yeah. So a, a couple of things, I guess. It's interesting that um, Don Lemon asked why the doctor won't submit to questioning. I never heard that phrase before. I've heard people calling for additional medical records to be released. That's a new one to me. And it might not work against Fetterman's favor as long as the doctor is prepped to not disclose things that he shouldn't disclose. Remember when like Trump's doctor would come and out and say, oh, I, this is a healthy patient. <laughs> let me tell you. I mean, so that's the other thing. That's it's what like, would be good for Fetterman. What are you looking yeah. for? Like, did anybody believe it when Trump said, oh, my doctor tells me I'm the healthiest 70 whatever year old man that's ever existed on the planet? Yeah. You know, a man who brags about exclusively eating McDonald's. Look, I'm not a medical professional. Maybe he is the healthiest 70 something man on the planet. But and in some ways, all of this seems rather performative. This happened when Bernie Sanders had his heart attack. He released medical records and they just kept saying, release more medical sure. records. Sure. And it's a bottomless pit. All you have to do is keep asking the question. It's like asking, you know, why do you beat your wife? You can deny it at the end of the day, but there's, there's never any end to it. Other candidates who are more favorably viewed by the establishment, um, Bloomberg has had a stent procedure. 
No one really asked about what that was about or whether or not he had had a heart attack. Joe Biden has had um, a brain surgery. Nobody really interrogates that. So there is something that seems a little pretextual about some of this. And it, I would I would like people to be asking more specifically what information they're after and what they yeah. think it's going to tell them that they don't already know about Fetterman's condition. I mean, I think that's broadly true. But in this case... I guess I, I would not ever mind hearing more, specifically in this case, from medical experts about the connect because we can see the impairment in yeah. his ability to speak, the the missing words, that kind of the, the needing to to read close captioning to understand. We we can see all that, and so it's how likely it is that he's cognitively impaired. It's it's. Is it just communication and mm. everything, all the wheels are turning up there? It just takes him a little bit longer to say what he's going to say, and he might say the wrong thing, but he knows what he means in his head. Mm-hmm. Is that the case? Mm. And more clarity from a doctor, in theory, would not be bad to, to, to say if the doctor thinks it's the case. No, no, no. It's, if all the wheels are turning properly, et cetera, you're just, what you're hearing is not what's going on in there. Or the alternative that, yeah. no, that what he's saying reflects that everything is not, that he has a road to recovery still, and he might in the future, he'll be better at speaking and he'll be better in the way he's thinking through these things. But no, what you're hearing is reflects an actual underlying mental yeah. issue that he has right now. And uh, so, so unlike a, you know, a heart condition or a, where, where right, medical records are generally going to confirm or, yeah, Donald Trump is fit as a fiddle, et cetera, <laughs> kind of nonsense. And I agree with you that, yeah, the reports are always going to ask for more. But there, this is kind of a this is a more unknown to to just the broader public for what you know what this means in terms of his cognitive functioning. Yeah, I honestly think Fetterman would be benefited by, and I and I I thought when I was watching the debate, he should have brought this up. Talk more about what the healing timeline looks like. Mm-hmm. What what I want to know, like I think like most people are willing to accept, especially if you're a Democrat and you want him to just help win the Senate, you know, most people are willing to accept that he's not at fighting form now. He just had a stroke, but that we've had stroke leaders in our lives. We understand that there is a kind of an arc that can happen in terms of healing. Um, just tell us what that timeline is like. Yeah. I think that could actually give a lot more voters comfort in voting for I someone who they years. wouldn't vote for now. Yeah. Well, st- I mean, to be honest, still, if, <laughs> I, this is not going to sound really cynical, but if Fetterman, if, if you just want Democrats to win, Fetterman being in Congress is a win in and of itself. But also compared to many other Congress members, I think I saw that something like a third of all of Congress have suffered a stroke at some point. You've got uh, Diane Feinstein, who by all accounts is not yeah. with it and hasn't been with it for years and continues to run for re-election. I mean, is this is, is a new standard going to be that all Congress members have to get some kind of cognitive test to make sure that they can stay in office? If not, I mean, Fetterman will just be one among many. And that's a horrible indictment of our political yeah. system, but it I mean, is what it Modern is. medicine is really amazing. I remember when Gabrielle Giffords was shot in the head horrifically, yeah. Yeah. and not only did she survive that, which seemed like it would be impossible, she was shot in the head. Yeah. She, not only did she survive, and then she had major cognitive impairment, and it was very sad, very hard for her, etc., but she has regained, you, you've, you can see her speak now, and she's regained substantially. Now, it's a very difficult, grueling process that took years and years and years, but it, it is incredible what, um, what science can do for people now, so so I, I get that, but it's not I wrong. I think that what question. would be helpful for everyone to get perspective is to just have the Fetterman Herschel Walker debate. <laughs> 
<laughs> where, wow. where we, we can just really, it says our, our, the communication standards before, after, in the, in the mm-hmm. absence of a stroke and, and have a more honest conversation about what we really expect in terms of, um, our, from our, from our elected officials in terms of their ability to communicate. I mean, I, right. I don't, I, I've never said that I would expect cognitive function from an elected, <laughs> that's, from an elected that's, person. That's not on your must list. Uh, cognitive well, function well we, who would, who would qualify? <laughs> Oh, man, what a sorry state of affairs. I know. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Tesla and Figaro joins us to weigh in on the independent vote ahead of midterm elections, which will be next Tuesday. We're in the countdown period. Yeah. Well, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of this election content or other content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, our parent company, Nexstar, will have live election coverage of the 2022 midterms. That'll be November 8th. News Nation will be broadcasting live starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and they're partnering partnering with Decision Desk HQ to call the big races. They'll also have journalists from across the country, including from the Hill. And of course, we'll have post-election coverage for you right here on Rising. Have a great day, everyone, and we will see you tomorrow. Bye. Bye.